Good morning. If you'd like to go ahead and take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 8. We'll be reading from there in just a moment. Um, and as you're doing that, I want to say how thankful I am to be back here with you all. We uh, had a, uh, a much enjoyed uh, vacation away, uh, and the weather was, was nice, and the scenery was beautiful, but the thing that was lacking was you. We were so thankful to be able to be back here with our family at Lake Street to open God's Word together. And, and I'm so thankful for those who have already led us in worship this morning for the songs that that Brother Ronnie picked out and the, the words that Joe spoke. And I want to continue to theme that both of them have already started, and that is pointing our minds to Christ. If you remember the songs that, that Ronnie picked out, um, they spoke much about Jesus' call for us, Jesus and the life that He lives that we believe even though we did not see. And John, uh, Joe talked about the life that Jesus came and lived on the earth and the sacrifice, the, the experience that happened unlike anything that will ever happen again in our lives, of the, the Son of God giving His life for His creation, for the sins of the world. And I want us to continue that thought of this idea of Christ being the Son of God. But I want to focus our minds on this based on a question that Jesus asks in Mark chapter 8 to His disciples, to those closest to Him following after Him. The question He asks is, who do you say? That Jesus the Christ is. Who do you say that I am? In Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 28, the first question he asks is actually, who do men say that I am? Who do the world around you say that I am? And then in verses 29 and 30, he changes it a little bit and says, Now, what about you all? Who do you say that I am? I want to examine the responses that are given to these two questions and what we can learn about them and what that can mean to us in our life. Today, some 2,000 years removed from the life of Christ. This is an important question that, is, that Jesus is asking. It's a question that we need to ask ourselves and we need to contemplate on because the responses to these questions, while they, they vary then and they vary today, they reveal much about the identity of, of us as believers or unbelievers in Christ. So let's take a look a minute at what, they, what the people said then in regarding to who Jesus was. The first answer that they give Him, uh, after He asked in verse 27, who do men say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist. Why would some people in that day be saying this is John the Baptist? Well, if you turn back just a few chapters to Mark chapter 6, we get maybe an idea why some might say that this was John the Baptist. In Mark 6, verse 14, we find out that Herod has now heard about the things that Jesus is doing. The, the life of Jesus and His examples and his, his actions are making themselves known to Herod. And listen to what it says Herod thinks. Now King Herod heard of Him, for His name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in Him. So Herod believed this was John that was doing all these things. John certainly was a well-known figure. John was someone that all of Judea had heard of. They were going out to the wilderness to hear him. Mark's gospel opens with that account. Uh, and, and John was, was also well-known by Herod because he was very outspoken against Herod. Herod had taken his brother's wife and he came to him and said, the woman that you have for a wife, she, she cannot be your wife. You're in an adulterous relationship. And because of that, we read in verse 16 that Herod has John beheaded. He retaliates because of what John has said. And so perhaps motivated by guilt, 
He believes that this man that I had beheaded has risen from the dead and is doing these things. Now others said that he, this was not John the Baptist, but rather Elijah. Elijah has returned. And this is probably based on a misunderstanding of Scripture. Prophecy, if you turn back to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4 and read with me in verse, in verse 5 there. Malachi 4, 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Some had heard this and thought, maybe, maybe this great teacher, this great prophet has come and he is, he is just a, a re-embodiment of, of, of uh, Elijah. But when we look at Matthew chapter 17, we see that Jesus had actually already addressed the idea of, of him being Elijah in verses 10 through 13. His disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah has already come. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So some people seem to think that Jesus was John the Baptist. Others thought that he was Elijah. And Jesus is telling his disciples, look, Elijah has already come. He was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was that prophecy of Elijah that had to come before the Messiah. He was the one that was to prepare the way, that was to reflect uh, in, the, in the hearts of the people their sin, the, the, the reason they were in the situation they were in. Why were they under Roman control? Why were they no longer a people, a great nation? It was because of their sin. And John came preaching repentance, baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And, and so he was the one preparing the way for the Christ. So Jesus is teaching His disciples, I couldn't have been John the Baptist. I couldn't have been Elijah. But others also said that he was Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Um, and this is mentioned actually in Matthew's account of this very same conversation. Turn over to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 14 says, So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. See, the Jews expected, some of the Jews expected that Elijah would be resurrected as a precursor to the Messiah. Or as Luke 9 describes to us, let's turn over there just for a moment. Luke 9 and verse 19. <clears throat> they expected that other prophets would probably um, arise as well. Luke 9, 19. So they answered and said, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say one of, one of the old prophets has risen again. See, that seems to be this common precursor to the coming of the Messiah that the Jews were looking for. As they studied through these old prophets, they said these old prophets are going to have to arise again because there's going to be that voice declaring the path to be made straight for the coming of the Messiah. And when you think of a voice in a Jewish mind, you think of the people who cried out when, when Israel was at their worst, return to the Lord. Do what's right, and He will not take you from this land. And so over and over again, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the old prophets, they thought this must be who this man is. But that's the answers that they give in this conversation. That's not the only things that people said then. 
If you look over in Matthew chapter 10, we get another example of something that Jesus was thought to be, and that is Beelzebub. Matthew chapter 10, verse 25, he says, It is, it is enough for a disciple to be disciple. Excuse me. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Now, the conversation that he's having here, he's referring to the fact that there are those that looked at what he has done, looked at the actions that he was, that he was performing, and said he must have the, the, the power of Satan is, is the one that's giving him the power to do these things. And Jesus is, is commenting on that, and he's, he's accepting that they are making that claim about him, even though he refutes that claim. But that's something that people in that day thought of the Son of God. They said this is someone who has come with the power of Satan, the wicked one, and yet he is doing these things. They also thought that he was mentally deranged. Look over in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 and verse 21. There were those that said he was mentally unstable. Uh, let's see, Mark chapter 3 verse 21 uh, when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said he is out of his mind. That's his family. If you remember this account, he's went home and he's speaking to his family. His family are saying, this guy has, has lost it. Jesus, the, the, the son of Joseph, we all know him. We remember him from when he was a kid. He has lost his mind. He's insane. He's crazy. That's who he is. You say, who is Jesus? He is someone that has lost their marbles. They've gone off the ranch. And some of the scribes and the Pharisees, um, or other people, I should say, there are others that seem to continue this thought. In John chapter 10 and in verse 30, John chapter 10 and verse 30, um, I may have wrote down the wrong verse, I apologize. That's not the verse that I wanted. I don't know what verse I was trying to write down there. Maybe. Well, the idea that I wanted to get across is that Jesus, many times, because of the things that He said, because of the things that He did, they caused people to come to a variety of understandings of who He is. As we've discussed, He was the, the return of, of John the Baptist raised from the dead. He was one of the many prophets raised from the dead. He was Satan himself in the flesh doing these things, or at least working on his power, or he was just simply out of his mind crazy. But then there was one answer that was given. And that was the answer that Peter gave. Peter said, I say you're the Christ. In Matthew's account, Matthew 16, 16, he said, I say you're the Christ the Son of the living God. Every part of that phrase is important. The word Christ is a Greek term that Peter is using, but it references back to a Hebrew term which means Messiah. The coming anointed one, the Savior of the people of Israel, the one that they were looking for. Jesus says, I believe that you are Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth, but you are also the Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And adding to that, you are the Son of the living God. God's, sons in a, God's Son in a unique sense. Not true of any mortal man. You are divinity. If you are the Son of God, you are God. 
and you are God in the flesh. And he wasn't the only one to confess this. Look over at John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and verse 49. Nathaniel. Nathaniel answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Very early on in Jesus' ministry, Nathaniel saw this. He makes this connection. If you look over in John chapter 11, verse 27, we see a woman named Martha, the sister of Mary and sister of Lazarus, making another connection to Jesus being the Son of God. John chapter 11, verse 27. She says, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And in John chapter 20, in verse 31, John himself makes this claim saying, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus, that is the Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus that men mistook to be one of the prophets raised from the dead, the Jesus that men said worked by the power of Satan, the Jesus that men said had lost His mind. These things are written so that you would know who He truly is. He is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. What I want us to see is that the opinions of Jesus in that day, they ran the gambit of, of variety. There were so many different thoughts that people had about who this Jesus of Nazareth actually was. And today, things have not changed. Today, we see the same thing. People have many different ideas about who Jesus is. Some say that He is a complete fabrication of, of Jewish and Christian tradition. Complete fabrication. He's made up. Skeptics deny that He never even existed. And yet, if you check in the Encyclopedia Britannica, now there's an old word that we don't use there anymore. The Encyclopedia Britannica has over 20,000 words talking about this Jesus of Nazareth and never once, never once hints at the idea that He did not exist. The Encyclopedia Britannica says that this is very much a historical figure that walked the earth in the days of that first century. But let's also look at some older evidence. Josephus is a Jewish historian. And he records many things that happened in the antiquities of the Jewish faith. Uh, and, and one of the things that he records is this very interesting phrase, uh, phrase about the, the life of Jesus. He says, At this time, there was a wise man called Jesus and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, but those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah, concerning whom the prophets have reported wonders, and the tribe of the Christians, so named after him, has not disappeared to this day. Now what is this? This is an example of extra-biblical evidence of the life of Christ. Outside of the Bible, outside of inspired writing, a Jew who was a, of Jewish belief says, look, there was a guy that lived named Jesus. And these things actually happened. He really did be, was crucified by the Jews and by the Romans. And he really was proclaimed to have risen from the dead by his believers. Now, Josephus never makes any indication in this text that he believed that. 
But he records that all of these things were true, that they did happen. That's a Jewish historian. I want you to consider another one. Cornelius Tac... <laughs> I tried to figure out how to say this word. Tac- Tacitus? I'm not sure if I say that right or not. But Cornelius here is a Roman historian, and he is f- much further from Je- uh, Josephus, from a Jew, in his hatred for the Christian faith. Josephus, uh, in, in his writing, he seems to, to kind of be indifferent. He's just explaining it. But Cornel- uh, Cornelius here, he seems to be very uh, angered and disgusted by the Christian belief. Because as he, as he would have seen it, being a, a, a Roman, what they were doing was against everything that he held to be true about the emperors being gods and about the pantheon of gods that watched over Rome. And so he writes a book called The Annals, a year-by-year account of events in the Roman Empire during the early Caesars. And among one of the highlights that he records is the report that in 64 AD, there was a great fire in Rome, and everyone was blaming the emperor, Nero, for this, this, this fire. And so because it happened on his watch, he decides that he's going to save himself by switching the blame from him to the Christians. This is what what, uh, Cornelius recorded. But what happens then is that for one of the first times in secular history, Christ is mentioned outside of... Cornelius actually predates Josephus. And and Christ is mentioned outside of, of scriptural texts. You see, what he says there is Christus... That is the name, the Roman name for Christ. Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of procurator Pontius Pilate. People who say, no, this is a complete fabrication. This is not real. Are ignoring the secular evidence that says, no, it's not a complete fabrication. Jesus walked this earth. Jesus from Nazareth, the man who came and claimed to be the Son of God, was crucified by the Romans, and His disciples claimed that He was risen on the third day, and they followed Him, and they died for Him. And that really did happen. We can't get around that unless we just want to write it off and and plug our ears and close our eyes and not listen to the facts that history has recorded. So, people who say it's a complete fabrication... They have no basis for them to say that. But there's another thing that people say. They say, well, no, He did exist. You're right. Evidence accords that. But He wasn't the Son of God. He was simply a good man. He was a good man. And I love the quote by C.S. Lewis. I know I've said it before. C.S. Lewis tells us that we don't have the right to say that Jesus was a good man. He says you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. You can fall at his feet or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. You see, many people say he's kind of like, he, like Mahatma Gandhi. He was just a really good teacher. He had great things to say. We should probably live by his teachings because they are good. But you see, Jesus never intended for us to be able to say that. We can't claim that Jesus is a good man and not the Son of God. Because a good man wouldn't lie to everyone about being divine. A good man wouldn't have tricked thousands into following Him 
A good man would not have allowed all of those people to give up their lives to prove their faith to him. That's not a good person. That's a deranged person. See, Jesus doesn't leave it up to us to say, well, he's just a good man. And so that's why some have said, you're right, he's not just a good man. He's more than that. He's also a prophet. He's a prophet of God. And, and, and this is very similar to the teachings of the religion of Islam. They say, well, you're right, Jesus Christ, he was more than just, a, he certainly existed, and he did more than just say good things that we should follow. He was sent by God to prepare people for God's teachings, but he's not the Son of God. He's just a prophet. But I want you to consider something. I want you to consider the actions of Jesus in just the book of Mark, where we're reading. In just the book of Mark, consider some of the things that He has already done. He has healed a man with an unclean spirit. Cast out demons. He heals Simon Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. He heals a leper, a person with an uncurable disease. He, he takes a paralytic who cannot walk, who cannot uh, move, and He makes him healed so that he can, he can move and he can walk. And these four examples are just in the two chapters. The first two chapters of the book of Mark. As we continue on through the book of Mark, we see in Mark chapter 4, He has power over the storms to calm the storm. He heals more demonics. He raises a man's daughter from the dead. He heals a woman of a blood flow in chapter 5. He walks on water over and over again. What is this man who existed? This man who was good? This man who was a prophet also show? He showed that he has power over life. He has power over death. He has power over creation. Which prophet in the Old Testament could claim any of those things? Maybe had claims to some of them that they did some of these things by the power of God. But which one could do all of that? The answer is none. And that is because none of them were Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus Christ is not a fabrication. He existed. And He was a good man. And He was a prophet. But over off top of all that, He was divinity. He was God. Come to earth. Emmanuel, God with us. Come to show us and come to save us from our sins. And I want you to notice this. And this is probably why Mark is my favorite gospel. In Mark chapter 1 and in verse 1, Mark begins his gospel saying, This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Chapter 1, verse 1. He says, I'm going to tell you where I'm going. I am going to show you that this man Jesus, he is the, he is the Son of God. And what he does is he uses Roman terms to show that. Gospel and Son of God. The words that he uses there in, in this passage, they, they reflect an idea that the Romans would have certainly understood. Because they would have heard it every single time an emperor came into their land. Especially starting, starting with Julius Caesar, but really picking up with Augustus, his preceder. Whenever they would come in, someone would herald their entry into the land. Whenever Augustus maybe came into to Corinth or Ephesus, someone would go ahead of them saying, proclaim the way or prepare the way. 
for the good news, the gospel of the Son of God. Because that was their view of the emperors. The emperors would die and become deity. And so these were sons of God in the flesh. And they have come to bring peace and prosperity. The King has arrived. That is what the Romans would have thought of when they hear this phrase, the Gospel of of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now when you stop to think, just who did Mark write this Gospel to? Common belief is it was written around the mid-60s. Maybe the early 60s. Nero is persecuting Christians. He's writing it to Christians who need to be reminded the King has come. This is the Gospel of the Son of God. The bringer of peace and and, and prosperity to those who would be in His kingdom. That's what Mark is preparing the way for in his Gospel. And you know what? When you read through here, you find out that the Jews didn't see that. We've already seen that. Oh, who is this guy? That's, That's John the Baptist. It's Elijah. It's a prophet. It's the power of Satan. His disciples didn't see that. There was a time in John's life where he sends messages and says, are you really the Christ? The Messiah? But you know who did see it? The blind saw it. Those who were healed by Him saw it. Those who were fed by Him in some cases saw it. But I want you to see who really saw it. See, Mark opens his book in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to tell you about the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And he ends the book in Mark chapter 15. I know that's not the very end, but we're bookending this book in verse 37. Excuse me, not verse 37. Verse 39. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Mark's Gospel is not like Matthew or Luke or John that is full of details of how he fulfilled prophecy, intricate details of his life, details of his, of, of his spirit, Mark says, let me just explain to you the actions of this man. And you come up for yourself with an answer to the question, who is Jesus the Christ? A Roman centurion, a Gentile, someone with no background like the Jews, he saw everything, including the death of our Savior. And there was no other answer in his mind. This is... This Jesus of Nazareth, He was the Son of God. We have seen then and we have seen now by the people that walked the earth in that day and by atheists and agnostics and skeptics and even believers what people say about Jesus the Christ. But the question is, what do you say? What do you say about this Jesus of Nazareth? Because your answer will determine your eternity. In Matthew chapter 10 and verses 32 through 38. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus talks about whether you deny me or whether you proclaim me. Verses 32 through 38, he says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. 
He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says, if I am the Son of God, if you say that I am the Son of God, you need to tell others that. And we think of that by, by speaking with our mouth. And certainly that's a part of that. It's also part of the actions, the, the things that we, the, the decisions that we make every day, the things that we do. What are we confessing to the world around us? What are we denying to the world around us? In Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17 and verse 30, when Paul talks to the men at the Areopagus in Athens, listen to what he says there. Regarding eternity, he says, Truly, these, th- these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. Who do you say Jesus the Christ is? That's important because He's the one that's going to judge us in eternity. He's the one we're going to have to stand in front of and give a defense, give an answer for the things that we have done. But not only does that answer determine how we will spend our eternity, that answer determines how we spend our lives today. In Matthew chapter 28, as Jesus' closing words in in the Gospel of Matthew, He says, all authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. If Jesus is the Son of God to us, Are we giving Him all authority? See, there are plenty of people today who say, I believe that He's more than than just some fabrication. I believe He existed. And I believe He was a good man. I believe He was a prophet. I believe He was the Son of God. And yet their lives repeatedly show that I don't truly believe that because He doesn't have authority in my life. He's not the King of my life. I'm going to make the decisions that I want to make. Not based upon His Word. Not based upon the things that He commanded me to do. Based upon what I want. What makes me feel good? Jesus says, no. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And He tells His followers, therefore, go make disciples of all nations. Go make learners. Go make followers. Go make adherents to this fact that I have authority. And that they need to give that authority to me. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Have you given Jesus authority in your life to say that I will be a disciple of His? I will follow His teachings. I will follow His desires. His will, not mine. Will you become a disciple? Will you become a learner or a follower of Him? Will you be baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? And will you continue to walk in Him and walk with Him until He returns? Will your life show that you believe and confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? If so, then why not start that life today? Why not confess Jesus today? And if you realize that you have not been, you, you maybe have done that before, but you have not been obeying the gospel of, the, of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, 
by walking in your own path, walking in your own desires, and repent of that today as well. Turn from that and turn back to Him. We would desire to help you in any way that we can as we, and encourage you to come forward as we stand and as we sing.